familiar with the possibility, turn to the book of Matthew and go left. Uh, because it's the last book in the Old Testament. And as you're turning there, I just want you to know that as we think through the summer, we begin to think through, okay, what are we going to walk through as a church so that our people can, can hear from God in a way that's unique and it's, it's tightly packaged? And I usually like to go to these places in the Old Testament where we look at a, a minor prophet, and when we look at these minor prophets, we see that they have heavy messages for us. Uh, and you may be thinking to yourself, what type of message does God have for me from this book of Malachi? And it's... A, message that is helpful to each and every one of us as we consider this idea of God's all-powerful presence in the entirety of creation. Go with me to chapter 1, picking up in verse 1. A pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland, and I gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated. But we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country. And the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this, and you yourselves will say, The Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies, to you priests who despise my name, yet you ask how, how have we despised you? How have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. Well, how have we defiled you, you ask? Well, when you ask, the Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is that not wrong? And when you present a lame or a sick animal, is that not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or would he even show you favor, ask the Lord of armies? And now, plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor, ask the Lord of armies? I wish one of you would just shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offering will be presented in my name in every place, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you're profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled, its product, its food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept this out of your hands, asked the Lord. The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king says the Lord of armies, 
and my name will be feared among the nations. Something light and fluffy for the month of June. The word of the Lord came to Israel through Malachi. The word is actually oracle when you jump into the passage. It's an oracle. It's a vision given to Malachi, a word from God as to how he sees the way that his people are interacting with him. The way that God views their mistreatment, their mishandling of their relationship with him. If you're unfamiliar with prophecy in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we have two primary types of prophecy. One of them you are familiar with, it is the lesser of the two. That is the idea of foretelling. When God says this will happen in the future. Now that happens from time to time. And for whatever reason that has gotten confused and, and discombobulated by things that we see on TV. Uh, so, uh, but more often than not, the type of prophecy that we see in the scripture is called foretelling. And in foretelling, it is, this is the word of the Lord. The Malachi, the prophet, is called by God to a specific situation, to a specific scenario. Whenever prophets were called by God, they are called to speak the word of God to an exact situation. And here Malachi has been called by God, whose name literally means my messenger. The reason that he's named Malachi is because he is a messenger of Yahweh. And as he interacts with these people, God is saying, this is the message that I want you to hear for me. And I love what he's, the framework for the entire passage is not you, bought lame, you brought lame animals or you brought your, your dumb sheep. The, the framework for the entirety of the passage starts with what we see in verse 2. I have loved you. That's our setting. That's, that's our base. That's the way that we are to see this whole passage. God says to his people, I have loved you. If you've been with us at Grace for any amount of time, you know that the pastor here has sworn off pets. He is not a pet person. He is the antithesis of a pet person. But to take the Apostle Paul out of context, let me just say this to you. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. This is our new friend, and his name is Gus. This is a picture of Gus with our kids. And this is creepy. It's amazing what you can do with a camera and a computer. Gus is new to the house. Years ago, the kids started to ask me if they could get a dog, and I would answer them with really sweet answers like, no. So Shepard started a dog-walking business, and he's hustling and flowing through the Creekside neighborhood. He's saving his money to buy his own dog. Though I didn't realize he was going to buy it off the black Facebook market or something. And then there would be times where I was walking, uh, helping them walk their dogs, and it hit me, wait a second, I told them I would not get them a dog so now I'm out here walking dogs for them so they can buy their own dog. What a weird situation that you're in. Gus is currently loved really well, uh, with the exception of a few bumps and bruises. Bumps is the nickname of my eight-year-old, and bruises is the nickname of my five-year-old. Her experience with Gus, he is and will be deeply loved. When you look into the story of the message of God to the people of Israel through Malachi, he wants us to understand it fully from that angle. I deeply love my people. 
I have an affection for you. I care for you. 20 times in this passage we see God's vision, that word of, of the oracle or the prophecy because God is basing everything, I love you, and that is a burden for Him. Because when He looks at the lives of those who claim to be His, they don't seem to be really involved. In this book, God's going to show us crippling that, that, that sin is crippling these people. However, the people don't realize it. In the same way that many of us who claim to follow after Jesus may have sin that is crippling us, yet we've not even realized or acknowledged it. The people have this odd fear at this point in the, in the text of, of God, of, of man rather than God. And the book is going to show us the consequences of what it looks like to forget our love for God. His name, again, means my messenger. And this first message that he has laid heavily on these people's hearts through the lips of Malachi is, I have loved you. And you'll notice as you run through chapter 1, they have a continual response to him. And it is a response of apathy. It is a response of triteness. I have loved you. And they say in verse 2, well, how have you loved us? You can read the tone there. How have you loved us? In verse 6, that idea of the foundational love of God, I have loved you. And they say to him, how have you, how have you, we despised your name. I have loved you. And again in verse 7, how are we defiling you? These people are in this really weird place where they're considering the idea of who God is and they have forgotten that He is for them. They're exhausted. They don't want to engage in their relationship with Yahweh. There's this cynical bitterness that's taken over them. And, it's taken, and it has taken them away from God because they have these weird, unnatural expectations as to how God should behave. As if God is a puppet that dances when we play the right song. I have loved you. Well, Brendan Manning, who wrote the book Ragamuffin Gospel, you may not agree with him on everything, that's okay. He didn't agree with you on everything either. He said this, we should be astonished at the goodness of God. That he, would sh that he should bother to call us by name. Our mouths wide open at His love. Bewildered that at this very moment, we as His people are standing on holy ground. I have loved you. And to every one of us in this room who know the person of Jesus, God says to you from a deep foundational place, I love you. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. I have loved you. But their response to I have loved you is where is your love? Where is it? Malachi prophesied around 450 B.C. in a place called Israel. He was in, in Judah, the, the wholeness of this, of this nation. It's a pretty small nation. And we'll see that as God begins to expand upon his view of himself throughout the text. This small nation is not enough to display the goodness of the glory of God. Hey, he was one of the last prophets who was inspired by God before this 400-year law. When we finish Malachi, the reason you've got a blank page after Malachi, more than likely in your Bible, is because there's a gap. That blank page says 400 years. So you feel free to write that in there with a Sharpie or a pencil or just add it to your notes. 
the Israelites have returned from Babylonian exile. They had been foreigners in a foreign land, and God has brought them home. Jerusalem has been rebuilt. The temple has been restored. The temple is rebuilt. The Word of God has been reinstated, we see in Nehemiah chapter 8. And their national identity as God's people was restored. I have loved you. We are already in getting ready for the 2024 political election, and it's already exhausting. A great slogan for the nation of Israel at this point would have been all or nothing. That's their attitude, or that should be their attitude, in regard to living for God. No more compromise. We turned our back on compromise. We turned our face towards you, God. We're going to do good things for you. They were ready for Israel to become the center of the world. It was time to go all in with the chips for the glory of God. Ready for Israel to become what God seemed to intend for it to be. Then, life happened. Economic recession. To the point where Israelites were selling their own children into indentured servitude. Priests took bribes. Rich landowners were were charging these incredible interest rates. Extorting their people. Pagan worship was back. Lots of kids that were in Jerusalem could not even speak the language of Israel. Life's trials and circumstances have blinded the nation to God's faithfulness and His loving presence. Life's situation and life's circumstances have blinded the people to the loving presence of God. I have loved you. I believe that we are not far removed in our reality from this very idea that we would look around us and say to God, how have you loved us? Things weren't going the way that people expected for them to go. But the people, they're not giving all they have. And we're not giving all that they... And they thought they were giving something. Hear that again. The people were not giving of what they had completely, but they were giving something. And they were giving something that was half-hearted to Yahweh. They are no longer excited about this God who has loved them. The nation of Israel has forgotten that they are loved by God. And when you forget that you are loved by God... The the mode of our hearts, the posture of our hearts is to forget to love God. In short, this nation was detached, disconnected, disgruntled, and disillusioned. This nation is us. This nation is the posture of our hearts toward God. Some people struggle not with the truth of their faith. They struggle with, is it really valuable? Should it really matter to me? Well, go with me. You see in the next verse, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned the mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals, which sounds like a cool wrestling tag team. The desert jackals. Rawr. And the Lord said to her, we see this in the book of Genesis about these two brothers. 
Two nations are in your womb to the mother of Jacob and Esau. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Jacob and Esau. What a crazy story. You've got these two brothers. One of them, the younger, is called Jacob. His name means the grabber because he's the second one who's supposed to come out of the womb. And he's grabbing onto the ankle of his brother and everything even in this weird situation, would convey to us and communicate that it should be Esau who is the beloved one. Esau is the one who is cared for. Esau is the one who is in right standing. Yet here, we don't see that. Because God does things in an unexpected way. And God does things in unusual ways. God doesn't do things the way that we would do things. God flips stories upside down. God turns stories inside out. I have loved you. The, the word there for, for hated in this passage is one that we get a little caught up in at times. We shouldn't. The word literally means rejected. I have rejected Esau. I've got these two nations that are functioning lots of ways, in lots of times the same way. One's known for pride, treachery, and violence, and one's known for apathy. Just two sides of the same coin. Edom was known for this treachery, pride, and violence. Edom, this nation of Edom, is their Esau's people. In covenant context, God says they've been rejected by, in covenant. But the nation of Israel, by God's grace, has been loved by him. I have loved you. When we read in this text about how there will be, they, will, they will rebuild and God will destroy again. They will rebuild and God will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and God will curse them forever. There is no future for this nation. How can I know God loves me? Through stuff? Like that God is saying to Israel at this point, look, every time Edom tries to rebuild, I'm going to undo that. Because they are treacherous and they hate me and they're behaving as if they hate me and they hate you. But you are functioning in a way that is apathetic and you're going to look and you're going to begin to measure your value in my eyes based on what I give you. Is that really how we should measure God's love for us? Should we measure that God cares for us by what we have in our bank accounts? By what we have in our 401k? Should we measure God's love for us by the car that we drive? Should we measure God's love for us by material possessions? Should we measure God's love for us in if we are lonely or not? Should we measure God's love for us by anything? What should we measure this love by? The way that we measure the love for us is in that God is faithful to His promises. The good news for us is that God loves us wholly in the person of Jesus. And in Jesus, He's offered to save us from death, judgment, and hell. In Jesus, God's offered to give direction for our lives. In Jesus, God's offered for, for our lives to have eternal significance. I have loved you. Well, how much does God love us? What can we look at? Do we have a picture? Do we have something that we can focus our eyes upon to see the love of God for us? And the answer to that is absolutely. We look to the cross of Jesus, which is empty because Jesus is resurrected, declaring that God's love for us is something that can last into forever. The love of God. The nation of Edom may build... And they're going to have their momentary goods that they celebrate. But I'm going to demolish this. Their things don't get to be eternal. Only I am. And those who I've invited into relationship with me. I have loved you. Verse 5. Your eyes are going to see this. And you yourselves will say, The Lord is great. Even beyond the borders of Israel. 
Do we see that God does not simply have a desire to be located on one small piece of land in the Middle East or in North America? If our understanding of God is limited to property, it is a misunderstanding of God. He's bigger, his, his call, his, he's greater, he's more vast than that. This is referring to the scriptural idea that God is the God of the whole universe. Not just a little piece of Middle Eastern or North American property. When we look at the nation of Israel, we have to ask, do they see who they are in relationship with? Do they see who they are in covenant love with? And because that's an important question for them to ask, it is an important, significant question for each one of us to ask. Have we taken for granted who we are in covenant relationship? Have we forgotten who it is that claims to love us? God loves us immensely. He loves you the way that you are. Meeting you exactly where you are. And He loves you too much to leave you that way. Shaping, working in you to make you more like Him. Do you find yourself letting the bad experiences and circumstances of your everyday life shape your understanding of God's feeling for you? Because we live in a broken world. And when we use words like broken, we've got to remember, brokenness does not just mean, oh, we shattered something. It means that this shattered thing has infected and affected each one of us. But God is covenant promising to us, I have loved you. God's complaint against Israel shows up in this passage. The first question was, where's the love? There's another question for us. What is the cost? What's this going to cost? Friends, if it doesn't cost, it doesn't count. How many of us forego getting free stuff because it's just free? And if, it does, if it's free, it doesn't matter. God's called these people to bring their best. Go with me, verse 6. I want to read this over us again. I don't want us to miss it. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I'm your father, where's my honor? And if I'm your master, where's your fear of me, says the Lord of armies to the priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? Well, when you say the Lord's table, it's contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is that not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is that not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Or would he even show you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. And now, plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since he has come, this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of our armies. I wish one of you would just shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on the altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies. And I will not accept no offerings from your hands. Why? Why does God say to us, our Half-hearted offerings are not good enough. Because I have loved you. I've loved you. Bring your best. 
We, we look in the verse 6. How do these human relationships reveal the depths of the priest's sin? What are they doing? How are they despising his name? When you go to verse 7, he talks about this, this dinner table picture you have. This, the altar is compared to an elaborate dinner table hosted by the divine. And they, these people, are bringing their worst to him. And the sadder part is they don't even realize that. That they're bringing their half-hearted things to him. Half-hearted things which communicate no-hearted things. When you say the Lord's table is contemptible, what are you saying? You're saying to me, I don't matter to you. I don't. You present these blind animals for sacrifice. You, is that not wrong? Chad, is that not a gray area? That's my name. I talk to myself sometimes. These blind animals. Well, gray areas are gray until we're shown that they should be black and white. The people of Israel have been given direction from the Old Testament very early on saying, hey, when you bring your sacrifices, bring the best. Your best isn't enough, but it's way better than your uh, half-hearted devotion. It reminds us what takes place with Jesus in the temple. You more than likely have heard this story where Jesus comes in and he flips tables over and he grabs a whip and hurrah! And everyone tells that story as if the problem is that the fact there are animals inside of the temple. The problem, friends, is not the animal. It's the hearts of the people. Because every time they would bring these animals in to offer them for sacrifice, here's what they were in, in a sense saying. They were saying to God with these sacrifices, they were just running through as Jesus walked into this temple. The, the priest would take the animal, slaughter the animal, and he was so crowded by the other animals that he would just go to the next one. And the people were not even given a chance to look at that sacrifice and say, my God, that should have been me. That's the message of sacrifice in the Old Testament. And it's the message of sacrifice for New Testament Christians. For the Jewish people, they were all for sacrifices, and they were to look at that animal and say, my God, that death was supposed to be my death. In the same way that every one of us who are in relationship with Jesus are to consider the cross and to say, My God, that should have been me. That should have been my death. And Jesus, or the, as God looks at the nation of Israel, He sees these half-hearted approaches to Him. And He says, I have loved you. And this breaks God's heart. Offering animals that are of no use to you says something about your view of God. Offering your time that you can't find to use for other things? That's of no use to God either. Offering our sidebar, half-hearted attempts at religion is actually mockery of God. Offering time in your schedule that you can't fill with whatever you fill your schedule with says something about the way that you see God. In the same way that bringing your blind sheep to God was spiritual malpractice, bringing whatever time you can scrape up to God is spiritual malpractice. Making matters worse, these priests, these religious leaders, they were in the place to keep these people on track. Yet they're just taking bribes. Con men. It's a sham. It's apathy masquerading as faith. It's the religion that says, you know, on my Sunday mornings, I get it. 
I see God, and I, know, I think church is kind of a big deal, but I see God best when I, I go camping or I go fishing all of the time. I see God best in nature. Well, that's cool. Except, if that's the continual practice of your heart, you're not seeing God in nature, you're seeing your reflection in it. I have loved you. It's half-hearted God speak that excuses our regularly being disconnected from Him, much less committed. It is the blank is my spiritual opportunity. Without something that reflects commitment to something outside of that, it tells them you have the same mission. My mission is to be at this, my mission is to be at that. Chad, are you saying that regular church attendance makes you a Christian? No. Jesus makes you a Christian. But I am saying that involvement in Christian community, which this reflects, says that you value what God values. Being part of God's people. I have loved you. What's the base for it all? The base isn't you should, you could, you would. The base is, hey, I love you. Verse 10, I wish one of you would just shut the temple door so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you because I love you. And I will accept no offerings from your hands. When he references this incense, he's comparing this to what takes place when the people of Judah lit fires to other gods. And God is saying to the people, when you light those half-hearted fires, you might as well be worshiping another god because you are. God wants nothing to do with mediocre, lazy religion. In 2 Chronicles, there's a guy named Ahaz. He's not great. Ahaz sounds like a terrible person. I don't know any Ahazes, but I would think they would be in trouble all of the time. In 2 Chronicles, Ahaz shuts the temple doors. He shuts the temple doors so that the people of Israel can worship foreign gods. And God is saying, reflecting upon that, I wish you'd just do that again and call it what it is. Because I love you. Well, why are they worthless? It's not because uh, I don't see the value. That's, that's the heart of God. It's not that I don't see the value in what you're doing. It's that you don't see the value. You don't see the value in relationship with me. Quit bringing me what you don't want. Worship that costs nothing means nothing. How would closing the temple be better than half-hearted worship? Because God is looking at a people who are bored by Him and who have a routine and they are barely engaged and He says, that's not the deal. Because I love you. This last question we would ask in this passage, well, does the mission of God really matter? Does God's mission matter? And you see this in the text. My name will be great among the nations. So it, I'm not a local God. I'm not a Clute God. I'm not a Lake Jackson God. I'm not a Richwood God. I don't have a zip code. From the rising of its sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations. God is saying, I'm going bigger. I'm taking this broader. 
How's that fulfilled in the New Testament? Or do we see that there? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make my name great to the ends of the earth. But you're doing a disservice when you say things like, well, the Lord's table, it's defiled. And it's product, it's food, it's contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn me. You're exhausted by me. Which means that you have forgotten, I have loved you. You bring your stolen, lame, or sick animals like lame. Your stolen, not cool animals. You bring this as an offering, and I, am I to accept that from your hands? The deceiver is cursed, who, is a, who has an acceptable male in his flock. You've got something to offer, God says. And I, honestly, when you read through the Old Testament sacrificial offerings, it wasn't like, hey, I don't have a good cow, so let me get my, my cow with the, with the pirate patch. It wasn't like they were, God was looking at them and they were saying, this is the best I have to offer. They scaled this. If you were a person who financially could not bring your greatest sacrificial offering as a, as a lamb or a cow, well, there were bird offerings you could bring. That's actually what we, we probably expect Joseph brought to the census in, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. It's staggered. You offer the best of what you have. God's problem is not what you're giving. It's the fact that you're not really giving anything that matters to you. They will know me, God says. The ends of the earth will know me. The ends of the earth will see me. The ends of the earth will respond to me. I'm going to make my name great to the ends of the earth. The nations, they're going to know me. And my name will be feared. I'll be worshipped beyond just this place. It's weird the way that Christianity works. It, it, it really sees, seems to explode in places that are persecuted. It seems to display itself in places where they are being pushed against, pressed down, and then the bu it bubbles up. Where people are given opportunity to take their faith for granted, they do. They do. God is saying, I'm going to take my story to the ends of the earth. You want to come to me with an imperfect sacrifice? I know, because I've offered a perfect sacrifice. You want to bring me your bribed priest? Yeah, I knew that was coming. My son is the perfect priest. This is the last words of a generation of prophets of the Old Testament before we get that blank page. It's the last thing that God says to a people who have taken him for granted. And the whole basis for it is this little sentence. Four words attempting to refocus the hearts of his people. I have loved you. I loved you. And to any of us in this room who would look at our own hearts and say we take him for granted or, or half-heartedly respond to him in worship, those four words are for you. I have loved you. God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus says this, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that who everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life 
John said it a couple of times. He said, see what great love the Father has given to us that we should be called God's children and that is what we are. John again said in 1 John, in his little old man days, love consists in this, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I loved you. God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Perfect priest, perfect sacrifice, inviting us from our imperfect condition into a relationship with God who is perfect. I have loved you. I invite you to bow your heads this morning. If you're weary and look at your life and you're exhausted and God says, come because I love you. If you see in your own heart this distorted reflection of yourself, of you taking God for granted, God says, respond to me because I have loved you. If you've never trusted in the perfect sacrifice of a perfect priest, perfect Jesus, then God says, come, I love you. I love you. If you see a reflection of yourself in each of these little phrases that would cause you to question God's love, would you look at the cross and see that Jesus loves you? If you're wondering if you're ever going to win, I want you to realize that cross is empty, so so is that tomb. And Jesus says, I have loved you. I love you. So if there's anything I can pray with you about, I'll be in the back right-hand corner of the room. The weight of who God is can sit on your hearts. I have loved you. Will we look at our short-sighted sacrifices and say, God, what, what are you calling me to? It's calling us to trust His perfect love for us. Would you sing with us? Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word.